Amen. Well, welcome to Two Cities Church. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, whether you're in the lobby or you're online or you're here. Welcome. We had an incredible weekend last weekend. It was Easter weekend. We had five services. Uh, many of you were here. Maybe most of you were here. We had two services on Saturday night. We had three services on Sunday morning. And just so many stories came out of that. We had over 1,800 people on our campus over those five services. Just an incredible time together. Um, yeah, it was great. Yeah. Come back. We can clap. That's right. Incredible time together. But, but more than that, I love the stories that came out of it. The people that said, you know, I invited, and I prayed, and they came, and I'm excited. I, I had one dad, he reached out to me, and he said, my high school son came to Christ this weekend. And it's changed the way our home feels. It's changed the way he feels. He would have said that before that, this past weekend, he had a profession of faith with his words, but not a possession of faith. Just incredibly excited about that. Uh, also, I want to tell you, those of you who are members of our church, I want to let you know about an opportunity that's coming up on April 26th. So this is for our members. On April 26th, we're having a members gathering. Now, here's our promise to you. Uh, if you're a member of our church, okay, and many of you are, if you're a member of our church, we, uh, we have members gatherings, and we never like to add extra events, extra meetings. We don't like to have meetings that could have been emails. And so the reason that we're having this is it's incredibly important. We have some really big announcements, like what we saw last weekend, which is that we are testing the limits and capacity of our facility. And so we're asking, and we're going to be answering the question, what do we do about our seating capacity, our sending capacity, our serving capacity, and our shepherding capacity? And part of what you're going to get to do is you're going to get to meet four of the new elders that we're raising up from within our church, as well as some exciting news about our future. So let me just take a moment. I want to pray for us. And then we're going to dive into a brand new series that we're going to be in for four weeks on the book of Ruth. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray you would prepare our hearts. Thank you for the worship, which was a great time to stir our affections, to remind us that you are great to remind us that you stepped into our lives, that that's the gospel, that you stepped into our lives and you forgave us and you changed us and you died for us and you rose again. Lord, I, I pray right now for just all of the different people who made commitments at Easter, commitment to come back to church for the first time in a long time, commitment to follow Christ, recommitment to follow Christ. There's so many different decisions that are made. Thank you for the people that prayed and served and shared and invited. Lord, I pray you would uniquely use this four-week series in the lives of everybody in this room and everybody watching online. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can type two, turn to Ruth chapter one. Uh, that's, if you're like, where is it? Well, you can Google it, Ruth, and it's just a small little book, but it's the eighth book in your Bible. So if, you kinda wanna, if you've got a real big Bible and one of those that looks like a real book with you, not just on a device, if you open it up, okay, there's Genesis and go all the way, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, keep going. Uh, once you get to Judges, the next little book is Ruth. And this is a really cool book for multiple reasons. Uh, one of the reasons that Ruth is such a great book is it's one of ladies. It's one of the only two books in the Bible that's named after a woman. And it's the only book in the whole Bible named after a non-Jew, Ruth. It's also a very small book that many consider it kind of like a small version of the book of Job. We're going to see today, in fact, today is going to be a lot on loss, a lot of bad news today, a lot of um, hard things that we're going to see today. And then we're going to get to see the story unfold in the rest of the, the month that we'll be in this and, and the time that Ruth and Naomi will be together. So very, very excited. If you'll turn to chapter 1, I want us to see the context here. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. If you look at me, here's what it says. Uh, in the days when the judges ruled. So let's stop there. Let me give you the context because it's helpful to know, okay, when was this book written? What's, you know, how, how, how far ahead of time was this before, you know, Jesus will be born? This book was written about a thousand years before Jesus was born. Uh, and this is written during one of the worst periods in Israel's whole history. So it's called the book of the judges, or sorry, in the time of the judges. And if you don't know when that is, that is when Israel... If you're new or you don't know much about the Bible, that's fine. Or maybe you've been around for a while and you just don't know this. It's right when the Israel got into the promised land, but they didn't have any kings yet. So actually, one of the sayings in the book of Judges 
is it says everybody did what was right in his own eyes and there was no king. So in other words, it was very much a day like our own day. It was a day where the highest value in society was tolerance. It was a day where everybody had a coexist sticker on the back of their camel. Okay, everybody just said, hey, I'm going to do what feels good. I'm going to give into immediate, impulsive, cheap pleasure. And what we're going to see in this time is we're going to see that God's still working even in the darkest times in our lives. And I don't know where you're going through. I don't know how much you feel like maybe we're going through a dark time. Some people feel like, is our city going through a dark time? Is our nation going through a dark time? Maybe you're just personally going through a dark time. One of the things about the book of Ruth is God's always working, even in the darkest times in our lives. In fact, he's going to work through a lady named Ruth, she's, I mean, really, contextually, she's a nobody from nowhere. Like, if, if you think, who would God work through? Well, historically speaking, and in that time period, you wouldn't think a woman. She was the wrong gender in that time period. You wouldn't think somebody who's poor. She's the wrong socioeconomic class. Uh, you wouldn't think uh, somebody who's a Moabite. She's the wrong race and the wrong religion. Um, she's in the wrong stage of life when we'll meet her. She's going to be a widow, and she's hanging out with a bitter mother-in-law. Not, not, not the great prospects for a great future, but God is going to work through her. Now, I think you guys are going to really benefit, I think particularly about this service. I know in this service, there are many, many single people. Now, what's interesting about this book, the book of Ruth is mostly, for the most part, about single people. There's Naomi, we'll meet her in a few minutes, and she is going to be single again. She's at the end of her life, uh, her husband dies, we'll kind of see this story, and she actually says at one point, I, I don't think I'm getting married again. And then there's Ruth, and Ruth, will meet her, but Ruth is single and ready to mingle. And we'll, we'll meet her as well. And, she, and then we got to meet Boaz. And Boaz is, he's a Christian, and he's rich, and he loves God, and he's single. And some of you women go, does that person exist? <laughs> we think so. There's a couple of them. Okay, Boaz, he's a good example of this. Uh, the, the, over the next couple of weeks, another thing that we're going to see is that in the midst of all this, we're going to learn about manhood and womanhood. Because Ruth is a great example, really from early on, but a great example of a godly woman. And Boaz is a great example of a godly man. And so in a culture and in a time, and I love our culture and I love our city, but where, where we are so confused about gender, about males, females, manhood, womanhood, this book's going to bring a lot of clarity. So first we see the context. It's in the days of, of Judges. And then I want you to see what happens. It zooms into one individual family, if you'll continue on verse 1. It says this, in the days when the Judges ruled. There was a famine. Now, we're like, I know you know what a famine is, but it's really hard to kind of know what a famine is, right? Because as an American, we don't have a problem with having no food. We have a problem, right, with just having too much food. Like, it's weird. There are more obese people in America than there are starving people. It's a weird thing to celebrate, but, you know, it's like, but that's, we, we are just in that place where we have no idea what it would be like to not have food. Now, famines were a big deal, and they usually happen for one of three reasons. A famine happened because of weather, right? It's like, well, the weather came, and, and so we don't, the crops aren't good. Or it comes from war, Right? Like, hey, what I'm going to do when I fight against you is I'm also going to burn down all your crops. And so you're going to, if you ever survive, you're not, it's going to be a long time until you can grow anything again. Or sometimes it was just locusts. And locusts would come and they'd eat everything. So there's a lot of reasons. But here's what we understand. And this is why it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. If you read the whole Bible, it basically says, God says, hey, look, if you're faithful and if you stay in the land and if you worship me, you're, I'm going to provide for you. So the famine was a sign of God's judgment. The famine was a sign of God waking them up, right? God tries to get your attention and my attention two ways pain and pleasure. Now, what tends to work better? Pain, right? I mean, not, not many of us, life is going really, really well. I mean, how many people do you know, they're not Christians, life's going so well, and they're like, you know what? I wonder if there's a creator of the universe. I wonder if there's a God who loves me. But what happens when somebody gets through debt, divorce, depression, a disability, right? All of a sudden they go, I, I, what's going on in my life? I, maybe, maybe God's using it to wake me up. So here's what happens next. It says this, 
there was a famine in the land, and a man, we'll talk about him in a second, of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. So we're basically going to be told, hey, there was these people, and they were in Bethlehem, and there was no food. And that's interesting because Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So there's some irony here. Hey, Bethlehem was the most fertile part of the land. So God's like, here's the promised land. Bethlehem's the best part of it, and it's producing no crops. And so here's what happens, verse 2. The name of the man in, in this family was Elimelech. Now, if you write in your Bibles, you may want to write these names down next to it. What do these names really mean? Elimelech means my God is king. Here's what we know about Elimelech. Elimelech had godly parents, right? Because godly parents give their kids godly names. And say, hey, I, so God is, so here's what we know. This, this Elimelech grew up in a Christian home. His parents prayed for him. They invested in him. But now he has a name, right? And, and, and he has parents that wanted something for his life different than what he wants for his life. And so what we're going to see is he's running away. He's the first guy who shows up here. He's a father. He's running away. Look who he has with him. Now, the, uh, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. Now, that literally means sweetheart or sweet or pleasant. So you've got my God is king married to sweetheart. It seems like it should be awesome. seems like it should be a great marriage. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. Some of you are like, that's cool. Those are like Harry Potter names. I need to name my kids those. Uh, they mean sick and dying. And we'd recommend that you don't name your kids those, okay? It means sick and dying. It says, and they were Aphrodites. Now, that's interesting. That was a wealthy tribe. Right? So, so calamity hits all of us hard, but, right? but, but, but if you're used to having a lot, like a lot, a lot, and then you have nothing, you want to do whatever you can in your life to make sure that you have something again. So here's what happens. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. And, and if you, you got to understand, like you want to almost, when you read the Bible, you want to put yourself as like a first, as much as you can, like what would the original readers hear? And if you're an original reader and you're like a Jewish family from Bethlehem would move to Moab, that's like rule one of what you don't do. The Moabites, they were a godless people. The Moabites, they lived about 50 miles away. If you want to know that their history, they're, I, I don't have enough time to tell you the whole story. They were an incestuous group that came out of Lot and his daughters. If you go all the way back in Genesis, uh, in the book of Genesis, you, you see where the Moabites come from. Nothing good is ever said about the Moabites. And God was always concerned about, hey, if you go and, you if you go and join this people, you're going to become like them. You're going to lose your difference. You're going to lose your distinction. But does Elimelech care? It doesn't appear so, right? We're going, to see that we're going to see for the rest of the book, this is a bad decision that a dad makes that affects his entire family for generations. And what he does is he thinks only about the financial and not about the full picture. We've talked about this before. This is the temptation of everyone, especially men. Where can I get the biggest salary and the sun, you know, where, can I go to San Diego because it's like always between 65 and 85 degrees and could I get a really good job in a really warm weather location? You, you know what a limelight never thinks about? Wh who's going to be my wife's friends? Like my, I would hope my wife would have some friends because, I mean, women need friends. They need some sisters to walk with them. So I've got to, that's got to be up in my mind. It can't just be salary. It can't just be location. Can't just be cheap housing. I have to be there. Okay, wait a second. Where are my kids going to be educated? Like, I, I want to raise the next generation. My kids have to be educated. And who are their friends going to be? Like, kids need friends, and they need friends who have the same beliefs. Like, what are we going to do about all of this? And, and, and most importantly, where's my church? I can't go somewhere where I'm not going to connect my life to a church, but this happens all the time, right? People make decisions 
primarily on where can I get the best job and where is the nicest temperature. And then they get there, and I told you this before, and then they call us and they say, oops, there's no churches here. Can you help us? And we try. Well, sorry, we, we made these decisions. We weren't thinking about the full picture. What we're going to see here, and I want to talk about this for a few minutes, is because we see a dad named Elimelech make a terrible decision that's going to affect his entire family. We're going to see this in a minute. He's going to die. His two sons are going to die. He's going to he make his wife a widow at an early age. He makes some terrible decisions as a dad that affects his family. And I want to just take a moment to speak to the dads and say, dads, we've got a lot of dads in our church. In fact, if you are a dad, would you mind standing up right now? If you're a dad, proudly stand up. And it might be a little awkward for some of you, but just stand up if you're a dad. If your wife's pregnant, we'll count it. Come on. And like three, three, remain standing, remain standing. Basically, guys, this is the encouraging thing. Listen, you get to create the world that your wife and your kids live in. It's an incredible honor. We know, I don't know how it works. Statistically speaking, if dad walks with God, so does everybody else. Statistically speaking, if dad doesn't walk with God, nobody else in the home does. What an incredible opportunity. You set the socioeconomic level for your house. You set the spiritual environment for your house. And we want to let you know that we're here to encourage you. We're here to walk beside you. And we want to take a moment and pray for you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for these men standing, young and old. Some of them are not only fathers, they're grandfathers. Lord, I pray you would encourage them, that they would make good and godly decisions, that they would not be like Elimelech, they would not flee out of fear. Lord, but that they would be faithful and fearless, that they would raise godly sons and daughters, that they would love their spouses, and that we would create in this church godly men that create godly marriages, that create godly families, that create a godly church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may sit down. If you turn to verse 3, you see where all this goes. In verse 3, it says this, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. It's really sad. Like, wait, Prince Philip died this week. Very, very sad. But he was 99. Okay? And he, lived for, and he was married for 73 years. And it's still very, very sad. But when somebody lives a full life and dies, there's a, there's a sadness, because that's a whole other sermon, but death is always an intruder. Okay? Death is always a reminder of our sin. But there is something uniquely sad when somebody at a very young age dies prematurely. Elim, uh, Elimelech, it says, he died. He said the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. So this is a really bad situation. She's, again, he's not thinking, what's going to happen when I die? What would happen if I came down here and died, right? He's not like, we gotta think like this, right? Men, we particularly have to think about the future. Like, okay, we don't wanna just like, I'm gonna get sweatpants with an elastic waistband and eat whatever I want, (laughs) right? That's not a a plan for health. That's not a plan for living a long time. I'm gonna have a bunch of bad hobbies. I'm gonna have a bunch of bad habits. Okay, that's, that's not gonna be helpful. Instead, we gotta say, okay, what would it look like for me to, one, since I'm such, you know, again, I'm just speaking to the men tonight, but you, know, you are the most important person in your family. You've got to stay healthy as much as it's up to you. And, and then you've got to be prepared. If, if something were to happen to me, what would happen to my family? Because Elimelech's a terrible example. Do you have life insurance? Do you have disability insurance? It's interesting. I, I heard one guy, he, he found out he had a terminal illness. He had about three years to live. And uh, he figured out how to pay his house off in three years. And then he uh, put everything on auto pay. And then he went to the flower shop and set up to have flowers delivered on his anniversary for the next 20 years. I know the girls go on every service on that one. And that, I mean, that, that is just, be like that, men. We all need to be like that. Uh, so, so thinking for the future. Okay, verse four. I want to see. It says this. These took Moabite wives. They took Moabite wives. And again, if you're, if you're a Jewish person reading this, you're like, no. This is, exact, this is like reason number one why you don't go to Moab. Reason number one you don't go to Moab is because you will marry Moabite women. And, and it, this is not about, God's not against interreligious, or sorry, interracial marriage. God's not against interracial marriage. God is against interreligious marriage. It's not about your skin color. It's about what's going on at the soul level. 
So he says this, they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. Ruth. They live there about 10 years. So this always happens, right? They think they're going to go down to uh, Moab for, you know, just for a little bit and we'll just make some money and come back. They end up being there for a decade. Verse five, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I want to talk a little bit here about just the honesty, um, the honesty of the Bible. What we're seeing is the Bible is incredibly honest about sin and suffering and its effect on us. And it's interesting because here's one of the things about you know, giving this message three times. It's the third time I'm giving it. Um, I'm noticing that the most feedback I'm getting on this message is from people who have suffered already, which is not a lot of us if we're young usually. But this is an important, this is like one of those messages like you'll, you'll need it now. But you need it now, but you don't really, it's like, can you just give me something that's intensely practical for right now? But th this is going to be a message that I think will be helpful in the future because, you know, everybody you know and love will die. And, you know, illness and injury and sickness and suffering and old age will come to you. And, and then if, the more people that you love, the, you know, the more suffering you invite into your life. And so we want to be ready for it. So a couple things we want to talk about because the first five verses give us a really bleak picture of suffering. And, and really, really of loss. And I want to talk about a couple different things. Well, number one, uh, why does loss happen? There are three reasons why loss happens. And you'll, you'll want to diagnose this in your own heart. When like, I mean, who knows? You get sick, right? You get cancer. Disability hits your family. Somebody dies. You're, you walk in and you think you're getting a promotion and your boss is like, you are terrible. We're firing you today. And all of a sudden, like, well, what do I do? Your wife betrays you. Your husband betrays you. It's like, just terrible things happen. And there's three, three reasons they happen. Number one, they happen because of our sin. Right? It's like you, you can get unhealthy because, you know, in, just illness comes to you, right? It's like, I have no idea why, I, you know, I, I got cancer. Or, or you could be unhealthy because, uh, or get disease or something because you ate unhealthy for three decades, right? It's like you could lose your job because you cheated. You could lose your spouse because you cheated. You could lose your relationship with your kids because you were abusive and domineering. It happens. And let me tell you this from all my ministry experience, it is the most painful of the losses because. It's the loss that you wake up at three in the morning and go, it's my fault. And my conscience is condemned on it. And I could have done something differently. And things could be different. They're not because of me. They're worse because of me. The second thing that happens is, is um, and this is an interesting thing that, that Americans are kind of waking up to, is, is that terrible things can happen and loss can happen because of who we're connected to. Like, I, you'd like to think you're an island, and I'd like to think I'm an island, and you'd like to think you're a self-made man or woman, and I'd like to think I'm a self-made man or woman, and I, I'd like to think no one could hurt me, and I'm an individual, and I'm an autonomous person. But let's just be honest. You, you could be working really, really hard, and your boss's boss's boss could be cooking the books, and the company falls apart, and you lose your job because of somebody else. You could be the faithful spouse, and your wife or husband could betray or cheat. Well, there, we're... You could be living your life, and because of a president, or because of a king, or because of a monarch, or because of an emperor, because decisions that are made at a whole other level, they can affect you. The third reason that loss happens is just because we live in a fallen, sinful, broken world. And that's the junk tour category. It's like, well, why do people get, you know, pancreatic, you know, stage four pancreatic cancer at 45 years old? You know, you meet people like that every once in a while. Like, I, I, was, a, I was an Ironman athlete. I eat, like, kale and organic all the time. I don't understand why things like this would happen to me. You're like, well, yeah, sometimes the best things happen to the, or sorry, the worst things happen to the best people. From our perspective, not from God's, from our perspective, there's like an arbitrary nature to life. Like I was just living and then this happened to me and I just, you know, there's accidents, right? There's car crashes. 
I mean, terrible things happen to people. And then you got to say, well, what do you lose? You lose, I think, as, and I thought about this a lot this week, you lose about three things in your life. One, you lose people, right? That's what they were losing. They lost Elimelech, the Malon, Chilion. So they lost people, right? This is, why, um, this is why miscarriages are so hard. This is why, of course, losing a loved one is so hard. Sometimes you lose people physically, they die. Sometimes you lose people relationally, they leave or they distant or they desert you. Uh, another thing that people lose is possessions. And it sounds silly. You don't want to admit that you care if you lost something, but I'll tell you, it's very hard to make less money than you're used to making. It's very, very hard when the stock market's going down. It's like, you know, why did people kill themselves when the Great Depression? It's like, because having things matters to some level and losing them hurts a lot. In fact, we've, all the studies show you that, you know, losing $5 hurts you way more than gaining $5 does. It's weird, but that's just how we're built. We don't want to lose things. We don't want to lose money. We don't want to lose possessions. The third thing, and probably the one that'll hit us the most, I think the average person in here, is that we lose potential as we get older, right? It's like what you are as a little person or a kid or whatever, it's like, it's like all you are is potential. It's like, what could you become, right? And then the rest, rest of our lives, you know, my 30th birthday, I won't get into this, it's one of the sermons, but it was a big birthday for me, okay? And it was just because you're just like, wow, like I'm, you know, you play the numbers game. I don't know if you guys do this, you ever play the numbers game? You're like, well, by this age, I should have. And it's really, you're, and a lot of times when you're doing that, you're usually dealing with loss. At this age, I thought I'd be married. At this age, I thought I'd have a kid. At this age, I thought I'd make X amount of money. At this age, I thought I'd be self-employed. At this age, I thought I'd have my PhD. You know, at this age, I thought we'd have four kids. One, one of the reasons that singleness and infertility are so painful is it feels like, especially for women, time is slipping away from me. And it almost, like, I, I have a friend, and I remember she came to us, a bunch of guys, and, you know, we were in, this was a couple years ago, and we didn't really know what we were, you know, we're still not know a lot, but we just really didn't know a lot. And she, she came up to us, she said, something really sad happened. And we said, what? She said, I had to buy my own KitchenAid mixer. I said, well, why is that sad? She's like, well, that was something I thought was going to be on my wedding registry. She was in her early 30s. She's like, I just bought it. She's like, and I bought the matching silverware that I wanted, and I bought the plates that I wanted. And she's like, all sad about this. And she's like, this is, these are the things that girls put on their wedding registry. And in the last couple of years, I've had to realize I might not get married. She was dealing with the kind of loss. And so what I want us to see with Ruth and Naomi is what do they do when they've had to, they've had to mourn three different funerals? If you look at me at verse six, it says this. Then she arose, this is Naomi, with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard, now we don't know how she heard, but she heard in the fields of Moab. I don't know if someone brought word. I don't know if it was a vision. She heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. This is the first explicit mention of God in, in the book of Ruth. He's only going to be mentioned explicitly in acting one other time, not until chapter four. This is why people talk about God's visible hand and his invisible hand. His visible hand is when we're like, that's God. I see him moving. That's clearly a God moment. That's a burning bush moment. And that's his visible hand. His invisible hand is like, oh, I didn't realize that when I got, didn't get into this college and instead went to this college and then switched my major, I ended up meeting her or him, right? And the invisible hand of God, you only see in the rearview mirror of your life. The visible hand of God, you can see, you can see through the windshield. You're like, oh, I see it, I see it, right? The invisible hand, it's like, you have to look in the rearview mirror and go, that was God 10 years ago. That's why I got sick. I couldn't see it back then. And so it was, it was this beautiful imagery that God comes down, that's the language, he comes down and he visits. And it says, okay, well, they're, they're excited, so they're gonna head out, verse seven. So she set out, this is Naomi, from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law 
And they went on the way to, another key word, and don't be afraid to write your Bibles if you, if you like to do that. Underline this. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. The word return is going to show up 12 times. This whole, everything changes in verse 6 when they start turning and returning. Right? Some of you are like, I'm stuck. I'm in Moab. I'm addicted to something. I'm self-medicating. I'm in an unhealthy relationship. I've got secret sin in my life. It's like, well, what do I do? The answer is you return. You turn around. This is the language of repentance. Here's what repentance is. Repentance is not you feel bad about something. People feel bad about a ton of things. People can feel bad that they drink too much. People can feel bad that they're lazy. People can feel bad that whatever they're, it, you know, that's not it. Repentance is not I hate what I do. Lots of people hate what they do. Repentance is I'm turning away from it. Repentance is painful. It's really, really painful. I mean, there's a joy in it, but right? it, it's, I, hey, the natural condition of man is my back is toward God, my face is toward sin. Repentance is I'm gonna turn around. And the great news is no matter where you are, you can turn around. That's the great news. And, and wherever you are, that's where you start. And you go turn around. And if you're like, well, what's the quickest way back to God? Turning around. You know, God's very fast. You think you've run away from him, you turn around, he's like, boo. <laughs> right? He, he's been behind you the whole time. You just have to, you just have to, he's very, very fast. You have to turn around. You have to see God. He's right there. And so it, it, this is this beautiful language that the people, they turn around and they begin to head back. Let's look at verse eight. But Naomi said to her two daughters, so, so they're walking back. They're walking this 50 mile trek back and they stop. We don't know. They're stopping some rest area or whatever, what it was like back then. And they, 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 they calm down for a minute. And they start talking. Verse eight. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, this is interesting. Um, theologians, commentators notice that 52% of the book of Ruth is conversations. Why? Because it's a bunch of women, okay? <laughs> right? They're just, they keep talking about things, right? Some of you women, if, you're, if your husband's like, we can't talk about this anymore, you go, nope, that's not biblical. We have to talk about this, okay? <laughs> it's biblical to talk about this. Um, and what's interesting is, 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 so she's talking, they're having a conversation, and then verse nine, she moves into prayer. This is a really neat thing. So, so they're trusting the Lord together. So they're, really, Naomi's leading, and she's talking with them and praying for them. In fact, it's hard to tell exactly where her conversation with them ends and her prayer for them begins. But she's clearly doing both. And by the way, prayer is how you recognize God's providence. Prayer is how I say, hey, God, in providence, by the way, is God, you're doing, using natural things for supernatural purposes. God, I believe that you're hidden but never absent. God, I believe that you care, you're concerned, you're in control. God, I believe that you're guiding and you're guarding and you're governing everything in my life. Prayer is the way that you, you tell yourself that, you tell others that, you tell God that. So look at this prayer. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. In other words, I hope you get remarried. I don't have any sons for you anymore. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? There was a tradition back then that if, if, uh, if a husband died and one of the brothers was single of him, he would marry the woman and take care of her. But she's like, I've got no one left. She's even gonna go on and say in a minute, and, and even if I got pregnant tomorrow, got married, got pregnant tomorrow, you're not gonna wait 20 years. She's trying to get him to go. Verse 12, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. 
For it is exceedingly, and this is interesting, and this is honest. And Ruth, we're not sure if Ruth's in a healthy place, but she's in an honest place. So, so probably by extension, she probably is in a healthy place. She's not hiding. She's very honest about what she's feeling. She says this, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is amazing. She somehow, and, and I don't know, this is what we're trying to do here is build a church, build a group of people together that actually when bad things happen, they think about God in them. Somehow, we don't, she says something interesting that, that, that she's basically saying the Lord's gone against me in this, which is interesting. This is the exact opposite. How, how do Americans think about things? Well, that was a weird coincidence or that was a terrible coincidence or that was good fortune. No, that was bad fortune. That was good karma. No, that was bad karma. That was happenstance. That was circumstance. That was serendipity. That was weird, right? I mean, that's how we view things. Where it's like, God's like, she's got this kind of thing where she's like, I think, and we're gonna see this more. She's like, I think, and somehow God allowed this to happen to me. It doesn't mean that God, God is not the originator of evil, but God is in control. The other options are, we, here's the other options, which we don't believe, that God is a, just, we believe in deism, that God set the world up and is just watching and uninvolved. We don't believe that. We don't believe in determinism. Determinism is that you're all robots and I'm a robot. And we have no say and we have no responsibility and we have no autonomy. It's fatalism. And, and we're just, we're puppets. We don't believe that. We don't believe in open theism. Open theism is a theological belief that says God's a really good guy. He's trying his best. And he's reacting and responding the best he can to everything that's happening. And he's doing a great job, but all he's doing is reacting and responding. We believe somehow, and there's a mystery to this, and, and, right? And, and every Christian says it with trembling. So, somehow God allowed this. You gotta, say, you gotta say it now before something terrible happens. You don't say it the moment something terrible happens. But somehow God allowed this, permitted this to happen. And, and somehow, just because we don't know exactly why this is going to happen, like we don't, if you don't know the book of Ruth, it's like maybe you don't know that Ruth is gonna end up being the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. So, well, that doesn't happen if they don't go down to Moab. That doesn't happen if there aren't other funerals. It's like, well, my head hurts thinking about how it all works together, right? And your head probably should hurt too, but there's this, there's this awe with like, God, okay. So I want you to see what happens next. So she basically says, leave. She says, leave to both of her daughters, daughters-in-law. Verse 14, they lifted up their voices, they wept again. They're crying, they're emotional about it. She's like, I, just go, just go home. And then it says this, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, okay? So the kissing is, I'm about to leave. Orpah's about to leave. So Ruth is gonna go with uh, Naomi. And what is Orpah gonna do? Start a nationwide TV show. No, that's Oprah, that's Oprah, different, different person. Uh, Orpah's gonna leave and she's gonna go back to the Moabites. See if you're paying attention. All right, verse 15. <clears throat> and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And then this is where everything changes. Verse 16, what we're going to see here is Ruth becomes a Christian. Ruth becomes a believer. Ruth trusting God. Ruth goes from a Moabite, non-believing person to a Moabite, believing person. Here's what it says. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, 
She said no more. This is amazing because what we see here is the reason why this book is called Ruth and not Naomi. Like so far, if you're reading it, it's like, I think it should be called Naomi. I mean, she's the one that lost the husband and the two sons. She's the one that decides to go back. Like, or maybe you'll see next week, you might be like, why isn't this book called Boaz? Like he's this great, godly, generous, he's running a business, he's good to people, he's gonna be this kinsman redeemer. Why didn't, why didn't they call this book Boaz? It's because this whole book is about Ruth becoming a Christian and the change that it has on everybody. Like this is, this is the moment where she says, my God will be your God. This is why these vows are so intimate and so deep and so personal that they're often said at weddings. I've heard this before, where a wife will actually say this to her husband as a covenantal committal. It, it, it's the language of loyalty. And this is so important because this is always the issue. The issue at the, you know, part of what we do when we can come together is we, we try to deal with things at the bottom and at the basement. It's like, what is the issue? The issue in everybody's life is, if they're not, they need to become Christians. That everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs to give Jesus their sin and their self. Every person needs to be made spiritually alive and made born again. And, and let me just tell you, probably once a month I'm talking either with a parent who's heartbroken over their kids or a spouse who's heartbroken over their husband and wife or... Um, you know, or a friend who's heartbroken over a friend, you know. Um, in, in, in all of those situations, when you, when you begin to talk to people, like, you know, you talk, you talk to a dad and you're like, man, and he's, he's, he's talking about his rebellious son or his rebellious daughter. Oh, he's addicted to porn. Oh, he's lying to us. Oh, he's hiding things. Oh, he's, you know, he doesn't want to go to student ministry. He's not interested in reading his Bible. It's like you talk to people, and it's very hard to talk to people about their kids, right? It's like, there's no talking to people about their kids unless they really invite you in. But one of the things that often is just if you're really, it's like, how long has this been happening? Oh, years. It's like, okay, can we just, can we just talk, say what's going on here? Your son is not a believer. That's the issue. That's it. I'm not saying, I don't mind saying there's a massively easy fix. God's got to work. That's the issue. As soon as someone's born again, they, now it, they may be crawling, but they want to move toward things. They want to be honest. They want to repent. They want to walk in the light. They want to know God. They get new affections. That's the issue. Every once in a while you talk to people, usually it's the wife. She's complaining about her husband. It's like, and you have to lean over and go, you married an unbeliever. I know you don't want to tell yourself that. And now you have kids together and you're wondering why your house feels so divided. And your husband isn't the spiritual leader because he can't be the spiritual leader if he's not spiritually alive. And you're, you're worried about things like he doesn't want to go to church. It's like, he's not a Christian. This is the issue. This is it. And if this, this is what we got to pray for because when this changes, when they really give their life fully to Christ, everything in their life changes. For Ruth, she's going to go, your God's going to be my God and your people are going to be my people. Right? One, one of the ways that you know somebody has become a believer is they have a passion for God and they have a passion for God's people. What's sad is we are living in the greatest decline of Christianity in the history of our nation. The Gallup poll, which is very respected, last week came out with a brand new poll that said for the first time in the history, this is not, not a Christian organization, for the first time in the history of America, less than 50% of adults ever go to church. Well, that would be at least maybe a potential sign <laughs> that, that someone would be a believer, that they would have any desire to go to church, any desire to be part of God's people. And so what we see here is Ruth's life is changed, and this is going to change and transform the rest of the book. I want you to see what happens here. So in verse 19, it says this, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. So they, 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 the book starts in Bethlehem. They go down to Moab. It's a boomerang, right? And now they're coming back to Bethlehem. And it says in verse 19, the two of them went on. Now, this is interesting. I thought about this for a long time this week. 
You have a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law who love each other. That's strange. Right? I mean, what's the most difficult relationship often in the family? I mean, and it affects multiple people. It's often the daughter-in-law and the mother-in-law. Sometimes it's the mother-daughter relationship. Often it's the mother-in-law and it's the daughter-in-law. Now, what's amazing here is they love each other. They're hugging. They're crying. They're, I mean, th those, wor those words of covenantal commitment was a daughter-in-law saying that to a mother-in-law. And this is interesting because people go, as they read this, they go, well, how are they able to deal with three funerals and a famine and all of this? Well, two reasons. One, they were genuine believers. They were able to see God in it. We'll see more of that in the, in the rest of today. The second thing that's really interesting is they had each other and they had a good relationship. And I've seen this too. Like there, there's a big difference. Believe me, there's a big difference between moms dying in the hospital, which is very, very sad, and moms dying in the hospital and all of the siblings are fighting because there's a big inheritance involved or because someone's power of eternity or because they have disagree about everything, right? There's a big difference between, oh my goodness, we found out that our child has a disability and we found that out and we have a terrible marriage. And we're not solid and strong together, so we can't actually handle the extra suffering in our lives. This is why you need these. This is why, it's like, why do we talk about weekender and community groups and meaningful community and being connected and committed to a church? It's so this can happen. It's so that when the storms of life come, you've got other people to walk with you to bear those burdens. So here we have the mother-in-law. Here we have the daughter-in-law. They're heading back to Bethlehem, uh, verse 19. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. Of course they were. These were small towns. Naomi leaves with a husband and two sons. She comes back with a Moabite woman. It's like, uh, what happened? <laughs> and, and, and this Moabite woman, Ruth, be, has become a Christian. She's like, I'm following the Lord. I, I, I'm trusting you guys. I, I want to go to synagogue. I'm in. So it says they're, all, they're stirred. And the women said, is this Naomi? It had been a decade. I mean, suffering takes a toll. We're not sure exactly if, if her appearance had changed. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Now, let me just say this. Mara is a beautiful name. Okay? Some of you have named your daughter or whatever Mara. It means bitter. Okay? That's what it means. Um, it says, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. It's like, okay, you're saying it again. You're seeing God again in this. We don't know her tone. But she says this, I went away full. I had two sons. I had a husband who loved me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She begins to publicly lament. And this is a lost discipline in, the, in Christianity today. Lamenting is how we deal with pain and sorrow and grief. A third of the Psalms. So if you open up your Bible to the middle, you know, the very middle, there'll be the Psalms. 50 of the 150 Psalms are laments. And every lament has four parts. A guy who wrote Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, uh, a great little book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, he talks about these four things um, that are in every lament. The first, he says, is turning. The second is complaining. The third is asking. And the fourth is trusting. And I give you this because, man, is this helpful. If somebody's going through suffering, this, this will really be a helpful resource and tool for them. Um, the first thing is turning. Because what do you want to do when bad things happen? What do you do? Turn. We tend to turn to everything but God. It just depends on what you like to turn to. You know, do you turn to drinking too much? Do you turn to eating too much? Do you turn to amusing and entertaining yourself? Uh, do you turn to... Uh, some, you know, some people, they just get really depressed and they just sleep. I, I can't handle being conscious and awake. I'm going to sleep all the time. Uh, some t turn to very unhealthy and unhelpful relationships. Instead of saying, I'm going to turn to God. The second thing is complaining, right? 
Really, when you, when, if you're dealing with stuff, you've got three options. You can express it. Just tell everybody. And it's not a great idea. You know, but just, just like telling everybody and, you know, and just kind of throwing up on people. Um, not the greatest idea. The second idea is to suppress it. Not a great idea also. You know, not good for your heart. <laughs> uh, not good for your body. Not good for your stress level. Uh, the third is to confess it to God. And so when you turn, and then you just, you just complain. You just, I mean, you wouldn't believe, or maybe you would, the things that people say in the Psalms. You know, and you just got to deal with this. You've just got to deal with whatever you're doing. God, you, you, you just, God, I thought, I thought I married a Christian. Why are we getting divorced? I've been faithful. I'm angry. I'm confused. I mean, that's okay to say and ask God and articulate it to God. And then the third is you ask. And this is, these are all hard. They're all hard. They're all hard. We're going to need each other for them. So you turn to God instead of sinful patterns, and then you complain to God instead of people, and then you ask. And you, and you ask, it's like, well, you know, God, I know that, you know, he, he said it's over, or she said it's over, but I'm just asking this. Could, we, could you restore this marriage? I know my son said he wants to live an alternative lifestyle in Asheville, but God, would you do work in his life and just convert him while he's in over there? Will you make him born again? Will you send a labor into his life? God, I know the diagnosis from the doctor is it's stage four and we're done, but I just want to take a moment and ask you if you would do something just a miracle, because you are a miracle working God. And I'm just going to ask in spite of all this. And then the fourth thing is trust, which is hard also. And it's in this order. I turn, I, I, I complain, I ask, and then I trust. And the trust is like, all right, Lord, I'm leaning on you. That's the definition of trust. I'm leaning on you. I'm leaning on your understanding, not my own understanding. And I'm, and I'm trusting you in spite of seeing anything change currently in my circumstances. Naomi doesn't perfectly do that, but that, that, is, that is the call. That's what she's beginning to do as she's just dealing with her bitterness as she's dealing with her anger, as she's trying to see the Lord in all of this. And then it just ends with them. It ends with kind of a closing statement in chapter one saying this. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem. So they went to Bethlehem and they came back to Bethlehem. It says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This story begins and ends in Bethlehem. It begins with them leaving home. This is really a longer version of the prodigal son story. They leave, they get broken, they come back home. And they hear this amazing thing. Here's what they hear that brings them home. God has visited us in Bethlehem and brought us food. It's like, well, that sounds like a very familiar story. It sounds like something in the New Testament. I've heard of Bethlehem. Oh, yeah, that's where God visited us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. Naomi, Naomi said, hey, I went away full and I've come back empty. And God said, I was in heaven full and I came here to empty myself. That's what the Philippians said, that Jesus Christ emptied himself so that he could empty himself, so that he could be fully human, so that he could come among us, so that he could live a life where he's the exact opposite of Elimelech, <laughs> right? Where he actually could say, God is my king, and where he lives a perfect life and leads us to, and ends up going himself to the cross, dying for us, rising from the dead. And the reason we talk about the cross and the empty tomb so much is it's because it's from the empty tomb, it's from heaven, that Jesus says there's two types of people. There are people in here who need forgiveness and they need to be freed. They're on their way to Moab and it's like, turn around right now. You don't have to go there. <laughs> you, you don't have to walk all the 50 miles. You don't, you don't have to make all the mistakes, right? Life's too short, too painful to learn everything by experience, okay? You, you can look and see what happened to them and you can turn around. Some of you are like, I, I, I'm in Moab and terrible things have already happened. It's okay, let's turn around. For others of you, and maybe for many of you, what you don't need is 
freedom and forgiveness, primarily. What you need is help and hope and healing. This has been an incredibly difficult year, and I don't know each one of your stories. There's been some really hard things that have happened in your families, in our businesses. COVID has amplified and accelerated everything. And we want to end this service. I think I'd be remiss to talk about all this and not give us a chance to pray for the people who would say, you know what? I'm in a season of loss. It might be people, it might be possessions. It might be a potential. It might be some kids breaking your heart. It might be a spouse is breaking your heart. It might be a na- whatever. And you'd say, I'm in a season of loss and I need you to pray for me. Let me ask you, if you would say you're in a season of loss right now or grief or pain, would you please stand up? We'd like to pray for you. Please stand up. If you would say, I'm in a season right now, thank you, of grief and of pain and of loss, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd say, I'm in a season of grief or pain or loss, we want to pray with you. And what we're going to do, guys, is we're going to pray for these people. Thank you. I see you in the lobby. We're going to, we're going to pray for these people. And then what I want us to do is we're going to sing a song called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And it's a very, very old hymn that was recently redone. And it's a song about how even when life is really hard, I know that ultimately I'm not holding on to God. God's holding on to me. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the men and women who had the courage to stand and say, I'm in a season of pain and loss and grief. Lord, we ask, would you comfort them? We turn with them to you. And there's a strange comfort in saying, Lord, I don't know why you allowed this to happen. And it's incredibly painful, but I know you love me. I don't always understand your hand, but I do know your heart. Lord, and we just ask. I don't know what they want, Lord. In some areas, they want reconciliation. In some, they want healing. In some, they want hope. In some, they want restoration, Lord. We pray for them. And together, we commit to trusting, to walking together, and to bearing each other's burdens, Lord. Let us be the church. Let us know how to walk with people back to Bethlehem, back to God's people, back to God's place, back to God's presence. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.